is up, you guys? Welcome to another episode of Perfection Unfolding with me, Kara G. Um, happy motherfucking New Year. Okay. How was our how was our New Year's Eve? How was our New Year's Day? How's it going? How does 2024 feel on you? I literally rang in the new year at a chill kickback. Oh my God, my roommates are watching TV. Jesus. I brought in my new year at a chill kickback where we literally played with cats. We played a little bit of heads up, seven up, not heads up, seven up. I'm a silly goose. Uh, just heads up the phone game with like the, you make your head go beep, boom, and beep, bop. Um, it was dope. It was chill. I loved it. It was like, I don't know, very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It set the tone for the year I'm trying to have, if that makes sense. I'm trying to have a sober year. I'm trying to have a clear headed year, a year full of good food, chill people, um, maybe more cats. I could be into that. (laughs) Um, but like the coolest thing about New Year's Eve for me, because it's really not that big of a deal to me. I mean, I've the last three years I celebrated it with um my good friend Delilah, um, you know, dressing up with the cute outfits. Like every year for the last three years for New Year's, I used to um rent a dress from Rent the Runway. And it would always be like a hundred bucks. So if you spend a hundred bucks on Rent the Runway, the dress was actually worth like five hundred. So I would buy, I would rent this like super cute dress and we would get all dolled up and we would go out and ring in the new year in in style with champagne at this like really cool, um, bar complex place. Um, and, uh, we'd be swifty and we'd be having a good time and be laughing and dancing. And that's been the last three years. And honestly, like time of my life, like the best time. Dilla is always the best time. Um, the girl knows how to, how to, how to throw an event, you know, or at least organize one. And, um, and last year, same thing, but this year I was like, my life is totally different. A hundred percent, like 180 flip, um, from the last three years of my life. And naturally I was like, I'm not making it a big deal this year. Like, I'm just going to chill. I'm, I'm resting right now. I'm hibernating. It's winter. I'm in the mountains, you know? And so that's exactly what I did. And it felt good. But the cool thing is that a year ago today, it's the first I'm recording this on, or I'm recording this on the first. A year ago today, I gave up alcohol. So last year on New Year's Eve, I drank vodka lemonades, vodka sprites, vodka crayons champagne i had i had a great time um and then january when i was like no thanks i'm done with this and and it wasn't because i was like just i was gonna do dry january it was just because for months years even prior to the decision that i made um i was sober curious and i heard that word used or that phrase used once and i was like i love that because curiosity is one of my favorite, most valued values. <laughs> and, um, and it felt less scary, you know, it felt less scary than like, I'm going to be sober. And then, you know, struggling with like doing that when I wasn't ready and stuff like that. So, um, at the later part of 2022, 
I was actually sober curious. So I was experimenting with sobriety. I was like, well, maybe I'll just only drink at special occasions or maybe I'll just drink wine, you know? And I kind of did little bouts like that. And there was one point where I actually went several months without alcohol. And I was like, you know what? I've experimented going to these these special events and being sober and it was chill. And then I've I've experimented with only drinking wine and I'm like, okay, cool. But it just came down to to the the fact of the matter that I am super sensitive to alcohol. And as a as a person who's trying to be healthy and who's trying to heal, like it just became too expensive on my mental health. It was too taxing. And in and on my physical health. Like literally it came to the point where I was becoming so attuned with how alcohol affected me that um you know, I'd have two glasses of wine on a Saturday night. And by Wednesday that next week, I'd be thinking to myself, like, why do I, I feel so low? Like, why does my, um, why is my mood so depressed? Like, I don't, this doesn't feel like me. This doesn't feel like where I'm at in my life. Like, this doesn't correlate at all. And then I'd realize like, oh, I just had poison four days ago. And so my body was becoming so sensitive to alcohol, especially because I was being, I was consuming it less that it was like becoming very apparent that it was affecting me in this deep way. Like it was affecting my mood. It was affecting my state of mind. I'm like, what the hell? Like I've been, I literally haven't felt like this in so long. So that is why I have chosen sobriety um, for the long haul, because at the end of the day, it's just not worth it for me. And uh, that's not everybody's experience, but that's my experience. And um, if you are doing dry January, I, I wish you luck. You know, I send you the good vibes. Um, I think if anything, it's just good to lay off the alkies every once in a while. I mean, it is scientifically proven that there is no healthy amount of alcohol to consume, like, because alcohol leads to inflammation and inflammation leads to every disease, like the heart of every disease and every problem you're going to have physically, mentally, like comes from inflammation. So if you can keep your inflammation down, then you can keep your health up. However, I totally understand how alcohol is a part of culture and it's a part of social, um, it's part of socializing, you know, and it's like a way for people to, you know, relax or wind down or whatever. But I just, that's just something I've took, I've taken off my list. And to be honest with you, I can't help but notice and, um, put together the fact that I gave up alcohol and I went through so many shifts in my life this last year, like, because I think, you know, even if I was drinking once a month, that's still, you know, a weekend of inflammation. And then it takes several weeks to like the inflammation go all the way down. And that's clouding my judgment and whatever. So there's got to be, and I'm not going to go into the science of this on this podcast, but I know for sure that there's a correlation between having a clear mind and a clear mood and a clear intuition, like nothing blocking my intuition and making choices that align with my align with my most authentic expression, my most authentic experience. Um, so if you don't want to give up alcohol totally, but you're a little sober curious, my advice is, um, just follow that curiosity, just follow it. Like if there's a part of you that that's thinking, "Hmm, maybe I don't want or need alcohol anymore, honor that experiment. There's no rules. You can do whatever you want. Like it's never, it's not going anywhere, right? Like you're not, you're not going to give up alcohol and then all of a sudden just it disappears on the face of the earth, right? Um, give yourself grace there. And honestly, if you don't do dry January, you want to do a dry February, like do that, whatever. Or challenge yourself. Like when you go to the bar, have one less drink. Or when you go to an event, see what happens if you don't drink. 
You know, like, can you sit in the discomfort of not having something to hold in your hand or the discomfort of not being on the same alcohol level as the people around you, right? Or sitting in the discomfort of like just starting a conversation without being, you know, liquored up and primed and with like, I dare you to see what life is like when you can push through that discomfort, whatever it is that you use alcohol for, you know, it could just be for funsies. But if you find that you use it as like a way to loosen yourself up in social situations, I challenge you to see what, to see what happens without it, you know, to push yourself out of your comfort zone, to start the conversation, to still be your silly, goofy self. If that's your vibe when you drink, that was mine, um, without the alcohol, you know, see if you can release some of that judgment. Um, that's my, that's my proposition for you. Um, if you're sober curious, if you're not, let your, let your, let your freak flag fly, do, do your thing, be the life of the party. Um, there's no judgment for me either way, but my, my main goal for myself and for everybody that I know and love, and even people I don't know, um, is that you live your most authentically expressed life. Right. And I do know just as a matter of fact, that alcohol is a depressant. And if you do struggle with that without alcohol, you know, just try, try a little, try, try January, try a sober, some sober curiosity. I am pro, I am pro sobriety, um, personally. So I am biased. So don't listen to me if that doesn't resonate, but if it does, you know, play around. Um, that being said, I do not have any new year's resolutions yet. Um, but there have been some mantras that have been resonating, resonating with me recently. Um, that have kind of been acting as themes in my life that I've been moving towards and themes that I want to keep going in the new year. Honestly, like, um, well, let me just go through the mantras. So a big one that I heard on a, a creator's page that I follow on Instagram. And honestly, I can't pronounce her name, um, cause I'll butcher it, but, um, she's, she said something in one of her posts that she was like, I don't, she same thing. I don't really have any goals, but she's like, but a, a mantra I have is that creativity must persist. And when I heard that, when I saw that, I was like, oh, holy shit, like, yes, creativity must persist. Like that is my whole goal. It's like my whole the work I've been doing most outside of um, you know, dealing with my um just all my life changes and all the things that have been going on in my personal life, like in my career and in my, in my creativity, like that is, that is a mantra that I will be carrying with me all throughout 2024. Like creativity must persist. And I'm doing that by showing up for my podcast, right? Like I've been talking about showing up, showing up, showing up. You have to try, you have to try, you have to try. And I've been reading the artist's way and I went into a deep dive on how that's affected me. And the artist's way is literally about cultivating a relationship with your creativity and honoring that. And that is a big, big, big theme for me, you know, coming, coming into this year and throughout this year, like creativity must persist. Like, I don't give a shit what else I got going on. I am going to honor my creativity. I am going to sit down and write in my journal every day. I'm going to read. I'm going to write. I'm going to produce this podcast. I am, and whatever other create creative things I, I do, like I will be creative. I will nurture that relationship um because i've realized that i can i can't afford not to i can't afford it it's too expensive my life is so much richer with my creativity at the forefront 
it gives me a sense of purpose. It gives me a sense of belonging with myself. It gives me a sense of, I don't, I just, I can't live without it anymore. I've lived without it. I've lived with it and I can't live without it anymore. Um, so that's, that's one mantra. And in that, there's actually a quote in by Julia Cameron, Cameron in The Artist's Way. And it says, creativity lies not in the done, but in the doing, but in doing. And that's a wonderful quote. Creativity lies not in the done, but in the doing. That's a beautiful quote for um, dealing with, you know, all the excuses you come up with not to be creative, right? It's all the, well, yeah, you know, it's too late in the day, or I'm tired, or I'm too old, or or uh, it's not the right time, or I don't have the right resources. Like, no, bitch, you're just making excuses because you want the product to be done. You are re- you are finding you you just want it to you want to be at the finish line. You you just want it already to be built, already to be created. The creativity is in the do- is in the doing, bro. You have to you can't just complain about it. What it's if, that it's going to be bad if you haven't even tried, you haven't even started. Right. So that's like a, a great way to cut through all the bullshit that you tell yourself that keeps you from being creative, that keeps you from doing the thing. Right. So creativity must persist and creativity lies not in the, in the done, but in the doing. Again, that's just going to push me to just keep making mistakes, but to keep trying. You know, like I said before, how are you expect how do you expect yourself to be good at something without before even starting? Right. Like allow yourself to be a beginner. Right. Um. A big one for me that's been riding with me for probably the last six months is um, discipline is freedom. And there's comfort and discomfort. I have had a sticky note up in my mirror up until I moved, yeah, probably for the better half of 2023 that said discipline is freedom. And that's for every, that's a reminder for me in every part of my life, like in my, my physical health, in my mental health, in my creative health and my relationship health and my career health discipline is freedom it, it's true i just read a book um well i'll talk about that in a little bit but anyway discipline is freedom there's comfort and discomfort like you have to deal with the discomfort and sit in the discomfort of being a beginner to become a master you have to deal with and sit in the discomfort of doing the thing to get the thing done right to have a done thing I think for a lot of creative people, me included, starting is so fucking hard. <laughs> like starting is so hard because guess what? There's fear or there's like the perception that it's going to be hard or that it's going to be work. And it's like, yeah, you got to sit and do the thing, right? Even if it's agonizing, like sometimes just the thought of writing is agonizing to me. Um, but doing it, I'm just like, oh, that was easy. And then it's done. And I made all that hubbubaloo up for nothing. Um, discipline is freedom. Same thing with my food. Same thing with my my exercise. Like, And with my creative pursuits, right? Like telling myself I'm going to write in my journal every day and I'm going to read every day and I'm going to take care of my physical body every day. That takes discipline. That takes structure. That takes consistency. And it's not convenient. A big theme. Like doing hard things is inconvenient, right? It's not for the faint of heart. but it's for long-term, it's for reaching long-term goals. It's for delayed gratification. So discipline is freedom. The freedom of the, that comes from the discipline is the gratification you get when you achieve the thing via small steps taken over time, right? Creativity must persist. Discipline is freedom. 
Next one is embrace your paradox. Love this one. Paradox is one of my favorite words right now. I just, I love a paradox because guess what? It's like when two things are true at the same time and they're total opposites, right? Embrace your paradox. I am so many things that contradict themselves. And I can't even think of one right now, but I'm sure you can think of some, right? Within yourself. Like, uh, I don't mind. Like, I don't know. Embrace your paradox. Like, you're allowed to love this thing and a contradictory thing. That makes no sense. Like, you're allowed to live in the nuance. You're allowed to live in the in-between. You're allowed to... um, you know, love writing, but hate reading. You're allowed to like, you know what I mean? Just embrace the paradox, embrace your conflicting feelings, embrace, um, contrast, especially the contrast within you. Like, you know, a lot of, a lot of philosophers, um, talk about light and dark, right. And how we have both inside of us and you, you're only whole when you, when you embrace both, right. You embrace your shadow and you embrace your, your, your light, Embrace your paradox. That's literally what that's saying. Because you will be a whole human. You will be more fulfilled. You will be, you'll have more compassion for yourself, right? Like I talked about in a couple episodes ago, you know, yeah, there's parts of me that I find really annoying. And there's parts of me that I'm like, that's not the most helpful trait. But it's just me. I just accept it because it's true. You know, and what am I what am I gonna hate my, hate myself for being the way that I am? That's silly and unproductive. I love my whole self, but I'm allowed to find parts of myself a little bit off-putting, you know? Embrace the paradox. That's a big one. Um, I saw this quote today um, from a reel on Instagram, you know, where we, we get all of our information. And it said something like, new places increase your love of home. And it's like not necessarily a mantra, but that is something that I feel um, and I've been feeling, and I'm going to keep with me, because I felt it's it's so true. Like I've been obviously with travel and going to new places. Like it's a wonderful experience, and it's new, and it's cool, and you learn stuff, and you get to explore. But the, one of the sweetest parts about doing all that, like leaving home, is like appreciating that, like first those first like few hours where you're just like, ah, I'm home again, you know, your safe space, your bubble. Um, and this, this quote, new places increase, increase your love of home. I've been feeling since I moved out here, I didn't realize how much of an impact living in my condo made on me until I came out here. I had no idea. I like totally took that place for granted. I was like, it's a piece of shit and like I have to fix it up and yada yada. Like I had just such negative emotions about it because it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. Like it wasn't perfect. It wasn't like my ideal condo, but I like put some blood, sweat and tears into that place. I painted that place. You know, I had friends and family install appliances. Like I paid for those appliances, you know, like I invested a lot of time and energy in creating a space that was just me. It was just for me. Um, hell, I even shared that place with my former partner and I, I worked really hard on making it a place just for us uh, to come home to and be peaceful and inviting. And um, and I miss it. I miss my condo. I'm like, oh, you know, like I miss my waking up in my room and like my walls are this beautiful, you know, periwinkle lavender color, um, pastel lavender color. And and I can have my own bathroom and I can have everything exactly the way that I want. And 
you know, I'm living out here in, in California. I have all these roommates and it's, it's wonderful being around all these people, but it's not the same. You know what I mean? But I'm so glad to have this new awareness that like, damn, like that place, my place really does mean a lot to me. And I'm, I'm excited for the day that I get to come back to it and, uh, and just honor it more and to not take it for granted so much. Right. Like I didn't have that awareness until I, I, I didn't have the opportunity to, to be in that space anymore. Right. So new places increase your love of home. And I think that goes for, you know, it gives you more reason to go out and do new things and meet new people and, and, and live new places. Because like when you go back to your home, your home could be your people, your friends, your literal home space. Like I feel that way about my friends and my family right now too. Right. I haven't been away from, from people. I haven't been totally isolated by myself away from my friends and family like this in my life. Right. Even when I went away to college and my parents lived on the East coast and I was in Texas, I still had my grandparents down the street. You know, I've I've never been actually totally alone with no resource, no uh, family or friend resources in my, my immediate vicinity. So it just gives me more incentive to go out and try new things, to live in new places. And it makes me feel good that I made this choice. It just like validates the choice to be out here even more, which makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside. Um, and then I read today in the artist way in chapter eight, um, this book is really impacting me guys. I don't know if you noticed, but, uh, I'm reading it at my own pace. Um, but every time I read it, there's just so much wisdom and just like, it's just so scrumptious. I hate using that as like a descriptor for something, but I don't know. It is just tasty and juicy. Um, the last one, it's kind of like a mantra, but like also a philosophy or a way to go about things. It's art is an act of structuring time. Art is an act of structuring time. Literally, when you see a photograph or a painting, like it is, it is like a moment organized. It's like time organized via paint, via the framing of the picture and the way the light was captured and all that stuff. So you can think about it in for in a way that's like taking literal art into consideration. Like art, literal art is an act of structuring time, and I'm taking it in. In, in in like my own like subjective way, like art is life and the art of doing anything, like the art of making choice, the art of participating in a certain act, the art of eating, the art of, you know, being creative, the art of taking care of your body. Like you are structuring your time, the time you have on earth, like the time in your lifespan. And I, and I see the, I see that whole thing as art itself, right? That whole process as art itself. Um, and maybe I'm making it too big. I don't know, but that's how I'm interpreting it. And I think that that, I like the way that that, and maybe that doesn't make any sense, but in my brain it does. (laughs) Um, so those are like the, those are kind of like the mantras slash quotes that I have really been resonating with me and driving me in this new chapter of my life. Creativity must persist always. Discipline is freedom. Embrace your paradox. New places increase your love of home. And art is an act of structuring time. Also, I think art is just an act of rebellion, right? Creativity is an act of rebellion. Um, Creativity is messy and unorganized and nonsensical. And I think in a world that's so capitalistic and consumer driven, I mean, to just do something for the sake of it is an act of rebellion. And I am 
I am all for that. Whether that, if that makes you sound like a hippie, whatever, don't care. <laughs> but um, some life updates. Um, I've decided that on top of my health coaching services that I will be pushing, integrating, um, offering in this next year. My whole goal is to start my own business and to be able to work remote and help people from anywhere in the world. That is my goal. That is my intention. If there's an intention for 2024, that is it, is to get my business off the ground and 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 offer the value that I have to the people who it's the people who want it, the people who who need it, the people who who seek it out. Um but in that, in my health coaching, I I also have decided that I want to offer life and relationship coaching to my services as a wellness professional as well, because if I'm being honest, like health coaching is, is a stepping stone, right? Like I want to be informed from a health perspective for, of, uh, informed in a holistic way of how to help people with their physical wellness. And, and also health coaching is, it's a, it's holistic. So it's mental, it's physical, it's career, it's relationship, it's all those things. But I want to add in specifically relationship coaching and life coaching. And in that it requires some schooling on my part. And I'll be working on that this year. But I just want to share that I've decided that like health coaching is step one, you know? But the two things I care about that I will always repeat over and over and over again are is my health and my relationships. And in that, you know, life coaching is kind of a given. Like I want to be able to offer that service specifically too. Now, once I start practicing these three these three things, depending on the kind of clients that I take on, I will pivot from there. But that's just kind of a big deal for me because I they say that you know jealousy is is a is just an indicator telling you like what you desire, like what you deeply desire. It's just like a it's a flag saying this is what you want, this is what you want. And there's a there's a girl I follow on the internet who just added life coaching to her her services, and I was like. That's what I want to do. And I found myself for half a second being like jealous of like, I could do that. Or like, you know, just being a little bit of a bitter Betty. And I'm like, what are you doing? You're so silly. Like you like this girl, you like her content. You think that she's dope. You're just mad that you don't already have a certificate. So do something about it. So I made that decision. And also like that comes along with like the fact that I just finished reading these two books. Um, I came to this revelation during slash after I finished reading these two books, one of them being How to Do the Work by Dr. Nicole LaPera. Um, if you're into any self-help stuff, you might recognize her as the holistic psychologist. Um, the book basically, it covers in a very succinct kind of basic way of how to heal yourself, um, to get back, how to heal yourself in a way where you get to, to a point where you're living your authentic expression, right? And it, it she talks about a lot of things that I talked about in the episode where I talked about healing your inner child, asking better questions. Like I just scratched the surface of of that work. She dives deeper into it step by step with exercises you can do in the book. I highly recommend it because it's very grounded. Um, it's very simple to follow. It's very these are very simple um, concepts in theory, but actually doing the work and and making the breakthroughs. Uh, difficult but i like i liked the book because it was simple it was easy to follow along and it was like very direct it was like this this and this and this and this if you wanted this this and this you know where it kind of missed the mark for me is like you know i just like more narrative stories so like i like the juice i like the details um 
But that wasn't the point of the book. The point of the book is like, people are like, how do I do the work? How do I? And she lays it out very finitely and very concisely. Um, so, and so that, you know, that kind of, um, lended, lended me to like, I'm like, oh my God, like I did this work. I've done this work. I could help people in this way, in a holistic way. Um, and I would love to, and I'm not a psychologist, right? I'm not a licensed therapist or whatever, but with life coaching, with health coaching and with relationship coaching, like I would be able to, I would be empowered to be able to, um, share that knowledge from a health coach, relationship coach, life coach perspective, um, to work in tandem, maybe with somebody's therapist. Um, it would be supplemental coaching, but it got me excited because I was reading the book and I was just like, bro, like I've done all this intuitively. I did this work. That's fucking crazy. Am I a genius? No, I'm kidding. Um, I think, I think, you know, where she got me beat was that she just, she has the language and the words to be able to put it in writing, right? I'm just not getting there. I'm just now processing, right? What I've gone through and wh where I've been and like, what the fuck? Um, so the fact that I could even have made this similar revelations as her, as I was reading it, I was just like, you know, Loki, I'm like kind of impressed with myself. That's crazy. Um, but, you know, we all are humans. So like naturally, if me and her got to the same place, different avenues, different times, it's like, well, we were both looking for it. You know what I mean? Um, so anyway, and so then there's another book I read. It's called Dopamine Nation by Dr. Anna Lim uh, Limpke. She's a psychiatrist, a licensed psychiatrist. Um, and in her book, she talks about, you know, how we are dopamine addicted in America and all the ways that that looks like. You know, one of her clients had an addiction to um, like masturbating and to porn and to the point where like it was ruining his life. Like he was a successful, um, he was really successful in whatever work that he did, whatever line of work he was in. But like his addiction would literally like it broke up his marriage and was doing all this, you know, crazy stuff. And he was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, the author herself talks about her addiction to um, like smut uh, fantasy novels and how that was affecting her work and how she showed up to her relationships with her kids and with her husband. And she just gives a bunch of examples. Um, and she just makes the case that we have a problem with overconsumption, um, in pursuit of dopamine. And, uh, she gives really good examples of how to restore balance. Um, lots of great stories. Um, and I really like that. I can't, I don't, I could probably I don't know. I just liked it. Like reading these two books by these two psychologists, psychiatrists slash psychiatrists, I was like, this work is dope. I resonate with this deeply because when I was reading the Dopamine Nation book, I was thinking about my own overconsumption with food that she speaks to and my own overconsumption with sugar, which she speaks to, and even alcohol. Like throughout the course of my life, I'm sober now, but there's been many, many a scary situation, many an embarrassing situation involving me and alcohol. Like risky behavior, risky situations. Um, I literally ended up in the hospital after my 21st birthday weekend, like just terrible, terrible stuff. And all in the name of dopamine, right? Like I gained 60 pounds in college because I ate sugar, like a freaking, I don't even know. It was just crazy. Like I was just slamming those fun size Snickers bars like every day, every hour on the hour. And it's because it was like a habit, but also like the, every time I get the sugar, I would get a hit of dopamine and then it would crash. And she talks about the crash, right? She talks about like, there's a pleasure pain balance. And, um, we push on the pleasure side so much that eventually, you know, 
our body, because of our tendency to find homeostasis, will teeter-totter the equal opposite, right, to the pain. And she even goes into how pain actually helps balance dopamine, you know, if you pursue it in a healthy way, like with ice baths or with, you know, healthy healthy binding techniques, um, binding being like taking your dopamine producer away. Like for me, I've been experimenting with taking away sugar and taking away alcohol and taking away, you know, like all these things in different ways, like with sugar, when I was trying to give that up, which I've done successfully a couple of times now, um, for several months at a time, you know, I just don't buy it. Right. So it's harder to come by. Or even when I was vegan, like I literally went vegan, a big reason why I went vegan for five years was because it was my ticket out of saying it was my, my one way ticket to being confident enough to say, no, I can't have that dessert because it's not vegan. It was gave me a, a get out of jail free card right at work parties, at birthday party. Like anytime I was out with people like, oh, do you want this? You want some cake? Do you want a cupcake? Do you want cookies? Do you want this? I was like, no, it's not. It's not vegan. So I'm vegan. And then nobody ever questioned it. They're like, oh, okay, fine. But like the way our culture is, everyone's so freaking obsessed with sugar and like over consuming everything and just being, una- just being unhealthy for funsies. That if I if I wasn't vegan, if that wasn't my excuse, people would just be like, oh, live a little. Come on. Like if you're like, I'm on a diet, they're like, oh, come on. You can do one cupcake. And for someone with the problem, like a lot of times I would, I would, I would lose that battle and I would eat the cupcake and I'd feel all this resentment because I I promised myself I wouldn't. And so I was reading that book and I was just thinking about my own experience and how I would I feel like I've conquered that in a lot of ways, obviously always a work in progress. You can't ever really conquer that. Once you're an addict, always an addict in my opinion, um, because I have an addict brain when it comes to sugar, for sure. Um, I could help people in that way, which goes along with health coaching too. So I just, there's a lot of, there's just a bit, a lot of clarity and a lot of things coming to my brain. Um, as I'm thinking about the new year, as I'm thinking about the things I'd like to accomplish, um, and so, yeah, so that was like a, a, a life update. I decided I want to add life coaching and relationship coaching. Um, and also like with this new year, I wanted to bring up how silly I think it is that we just decided as a culture that January 1 was the day that you start your goals. Because I don't know, like think about it like this. When you think about life in terms of seasons, like literally, when you think about the literal seasons, what happens during winter? You know, what happens during in January? Things go into hibernation. Leaves fall to the ground because the trees are preserving all of their energy to, to withstand the winter and the cold, right? Like the, everything is literally shriveling up and resting and hibernating and, you know, uh, keeping all their power internal, right? To keep themselves warm. So why is it that we decided unintuitively to make January 1, the middle of winter, the time where we exert all this new energy and put all this new effort into all these new hobbies and all these new goals, like going to the gym and starting the diet and doing doing hard things that take a lot of energy and a lot of effort in the middle of winter. It doesn't make any sense when you think of the natural world if anything january 1 should be should be the day you know if you want it could be any day in winter should be the day that you decide i'm gonna put my whole 
effort into resting as hard as I can and powering up so that I can be ready to tackle those goals and those resolutions in spring when things start to bloom, when things start to come alive again, right? It's just so silly to me. Like I just, I wanted to bring it to the forefront because not even to be an asshole or to be like counterculture or whatever, because you know, that could be annoying, but just like, I don't know, in my mind, I'm like, just chill, bro. It's going to be okay. Your goals aren't going anywhere. And if anything, this time could be better spent planning and and thinking. And I put in here, like, use winter to hibernate, ideate, learn, contemplate, and plan for projects, adventures, and goals you want to pursue when you have the energy and backing of nature to execute. If you have goals and plans you want to take action on, take small, if anything, take small incremental steps that allow you lots of rest in between. Slow and steady wins the race because it's sustainable right? And then when it's spring and things start, war- things start warming up, things start happening faster and faster and faster because the energy is literally heating up. You literally have the backing and like like the the okay from the universe and from nature to be like, yo, go, 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 go. Like start, things start warming up and ramping up and like that's when you can start releasing and like acting on those new things. I'm not saying, I'm not saying don't make goals until the spring, but what I am advocating for is like, don't act like you can do you can complete and execute spring like uh spring goals with spring energy in the dead of winter okay because i can only like you're going to be met with some with roadblocks you're, you're literally tired the days get darker faster we are meant to get more hours of sleep if we were to follow the cues from nature bro it, and i'm not i don't even care to look up an article to to uh back me up on this this is just look around, use your eyes. Okay. I know common sense isn't common and I'm not trying to shame anybody who's got these new goals for yourself. Like, but just take your time with them. Like ask yourself the questions. Like you don't have to rush to do the vision board. You don't have to rush to get to the gym. Like if you haven't been to the gym before, like maybe start with a smaller step, like buy yourself a set of dumbbells and a yoga mat and do some online yoga or some YouTube tutorials for how to use a dumbbell. Like you don't have to make such big leaps because honestly, it it doesn't work like that, right? Accomplishments work work with like the what's the next right step? What's the next right step? What's the next right step for me moving forward and pursuing this goal, right? It's not how do I get from start to finish, right? Like you you can't. It doesn't. So all that to say, use winter to hibernate. Use winter to rest. Listen to the cues from from the trees and from being outside. Like listen to your body. Like don't push yourself past. Like don't push yourself from zero to one hundred. If you don't need to, like work your way up. Go to five. Go to ten. Go to twenty. Go to work your way up. You know. But if you and if you've been doing this, if you've been going hard consistently, like then it's just another Monday, right? It's just another year. It's just it's just what you do. Just because the calendar changes doesn't mean that like you radically change. Like it takes, it takes inspired effort incrementally over time to create a new you, to create a new version of you, to align with where you want to be. Right. So just take your time, have compassion for yourself. Right. And if you feel like going hard, go hard. Like listen to listen to your body and what it needs. Don't let me don't let me project my stuff onto you. Right. All I'm saying is that if what I'm saying resonates. Let it resonate, okay? Eat your soup. It's bulking season, okay? 
rest up, make your plans, learn, right? Use winter for what it's meant for, for rejuvenation and for preparing for the warmer months, right? All that to say, in the artist way, today I was reading, if you are someone like if you are someone who has goals or if you're someone who wants to have goals but has nowhere to start, there's this incredible exercise in the artist way in chapter eight, or sorry, chapter seven. No, chapter eight. Um, it's a chapter that's uh, titled Recovering a Sense of Strength. In this book, um, she has this, she has, uh, Julia Cameron includes all these tasks you can do to help get, get you to be aligned with your creativity and just like ways you can, um, well, I'll just read it to you. It's basically, if you have 2024 goals for the new, if you have new goals for the year, or if you're looking to create goals and you don't know where to start, I think this exercise is going to be great for you. I'm going to do this personally. I was going to do it before I recorded, ran out of time. Oops. So I'm going to read it to you. So, uh, this task, number one, uh, it's called goal search. And it says, you may find the following exercise difficult. Allow yourself to do it anyway. If multiple dreams occur to you, do the exercise for each one of them. The simple act of imagining a dream in concrete detail helps us bring it to reality. Think of your goal search as a preliminary architect's drawing for the life you would wish to have. Again, this exercise is perfect if you have like a kind of vague idea of what you want and like what you want to accomplish, this is going to put it in very clear, plain English for you if you follow these steps. So the steps. Name your dream. That's right. Write it down. Quote, in quotes, in a perfect world, I would secretly love to be a blank. Step two. Name one concrete goal that signals to you it's an accomplishment. On your emotional compass, this goal signifies true north. Note, two people may want to be an actress. They share that dream. For one, an article in People magazine is a concrete goal. To her, glamour is the emotional center for her dream. Glamour is true north. So essentially, it's asking you to find your north star. It says, for the second actress, the concrete goal is a good review in a Broadway play. To her, respect as a creative artist is the emotional center of her dream. Respect is true north. Actress one might be happy as a soap star. Actress two would need stage work to fulfill her dream. On the surface, both seem to desire the same thing. So this is, step two is asking you to find your true north. Find your north star of like, if you were to be living the dream life that you had, like how would you know you achieved it, right? Like, is it winning the Oscar? Is it booking a gig is it writing the book you know find your true north of like what your ultimate accomplishment would be step three in a perfect world where would you like to be in five years in relation to your dream and true north five years what did your life look like you know where do you want to be when you accomplish that or you know what does it look like step four in the world we inhabit now what action can you take this year to move you closer Pretty self-explanatory. Step five, what action can you take this month, this week, this day, or right now? Ooh, that's a good one. That's juicy. What can you do 
What action can you take this month, this week, this day, or right now? Step six, and this is the final step, list your dream. For example, to be a famous film director, list its true north, respect a higher consciousness, mass communications, etc. Select a role model, insert any role model, make an action plan, five years, three years, one year, one month, one week, now, choose an action. And it says reading this book is an action. So there you have it. That is a perfect way to distill down what you actually want in your life. And I feel like you could use this for your career. I will be using this for my career. You can use this for relationships. You can use this for, you know, where you want to go on vacation. Like literally, you know, rinse and repeat, wash, rinse, repeat. Uh, so I want to share that with you. I feel like that's, you know, if you are a person who's trying to figure out your goals, um, who are trying to figure out, you know, what you actually want, what you actually, what, what even is your dream life? I think that's a, a beautiful exercise to partake in. I will be partaking in it uh, probably in all the areas that I mentioned before, because I do want to get clear. Like I'm a person who's been, um, I've always known it's a paradox, right? I've always known exactly what I wanted while simultaneously having no idea what I want. Um, and it's something that I've dealt with my whole life and it changes constantly because I'm always learning. And the more I learn, like the more knowledge that I, I come into, like that means I make different choices. Like with new information equals new choices. Um, so it's always changing. Like I just decided I want to be a life coach and relationship coach. I think deep down, I always knew that. But I kind of was just like, well, who am I to do that? Who, what knowledge do I have to bring the table? But to be honest, like I have a lot of knowledge. Like I study this shit. I care about it. You know, I know things. Am I a genius? No, absolutely not. But I'm a person with good observation skills and um, a, 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 a wildly ferocious curiosity. Like, um, so yeah, so that's that. <laughs> um, moving on. I hope that you guys liked that. Um, I want to get into my gift of gratitude section. Um, so like always, take a second, ground yourself, and take two minutes to, if you haven't today, think about some of the things that you're grateful for. Starting now. Now that you're back, I hope that you feel better and that you have taken a second to just Take in all the things that you're thankful for in your life. Things I'm grateful for right now, this week, specifically since I talked to you last, I'm grateful for time alone. Um, you never know how important your alone time is until you find yourself in a situation where it's scarce. <laughs> Again, new places make you appreciate home, right? Um, I'm grateful for reading. I ripped through those two books I mentioned earlier this week, each of them 230, 250 pages. I, it's crazy to me because literally I've been reading the same three books for months. And then these two are brand new. And I was just like, and honestly, I, I think I've always had this story in my head that I'm not a fast reader. I'm not a good reader, but it's just not true. I think I just, I just like to, you know, mosey my way through a book and that's fair, but 
I'm, I'm thankful for reading. I have a lot of free time right now and I'll have a lot of free time. It's kind of the point. One of the points, one of the reasons why I'm even out here in the first place. So I have more free time to work on the things that are important to me. And, um, reading is one of them. I am excited to read more books this year and to, I mean, now that I've proven to myself, I can read a book in a day, pretty much. I'm just like, damn, like what else am I capable of? It's crazy. Um, I'm grateful for breathing cold air. <laughs> Today I walked outside. I took a walk, um, to read on a rock with that can overlook, um, the valley where I live. And as soon as I stepped outside, I had been inside for like two two full days, like two full days, did not even take a breath of fresh air. And when I walked outside, the air was just a little bit, a little bit chilly to the point where as soon as I, I took a breath in, it felt spicy in my nose and made me cry a little bit. But then after a while, like I took some like big, like some like big deep breaths. And I was like, God damn, this air is crispy and just delicious. Um, that mountain air. And it's like a little bit cold, a little bit chilled. It's like a nice, nice ice, a glass of ice water on a summer day. Um, that felt really good. And also, I don't know if you guys know this, but like when you sit in a room for a long period of time, it makes you really sleepy. Well, I found out when I was in college. Or I don't even know when I found this out, but apparently it's because when you're in a room for a long time and no fresh air gets in, like all we breathe in and we take up all the electrons out of the air, which keep you like awake and alert. Again, I'm not going to look this up and, and cross-reference cross or fact-check this, but I think it's true. And it makes sense because that happened to me when I was like inside for two full days. I took a three-hour nap because I just hadn't gone outside. That might be due also because I ate a lot of sugar before my nap and my glucose spiked. It, regardless. Um, and as soon as I, took, I stepped outside, I was just like, I was energized. Like literally I had, a, I had a breath of fresh air, just like move through my body with all those fresh electrons and like wake me up from the inside out. And, um, uh, anyway, that's a fun little factoid for you. I'm grateful for rocks that sparkle. I was sitting today when I was looking at that overlook and, um, uh, all the rocks around me were glittering. All of them, just even the regular ones. And I had this thought, um, I think I wrote it in my journal, but I had this thought that like, you know, we always talk about how pressure makes diamonds, right? And like diamonds is the, it's the the standard, but honestly, pressure makes all naturally occurring sparkles. And like, even if you're just a regular rock and you're sparkly, like it still took an, an immense amount of pressure to make you sparkle. And it made me laugh because I was like, you know, we're not all going to be diamonds in this life, right? Because it's just like luck of the draw, I guess. Or it depends on how you look at it, right? I'm thinking diamonds in, in my definition is like the peak money peak. I don't know, actually. But I think it just goes back to like that. There's comfort and discomfort, like and discipline is freedom. And, you know, it takes a little bit of pain to get pleasure. Like, no matter what you're trying to accomplish, if you're trying to sparkle at all, it's going to take some, some pressure. It's going to take some resistance. It's going to take some, some effort. And, um, that just made me happy. Cause I was like, well, even if I apply, like with the pressure that I'm applying, like I'll, I'll be sparkly, even if I'm just a regular rock, you know, <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to say that my, my, um, my goal is to aim low, but I'm just saying like, it's, it takes effort to be able to accomplish anything is kind of my point. But anyway, rocks. I like sparkly rocks. I'm grateful for sparkly rocks. Um, 
I'm I'm grateful for feeling my muscles engaging when I'm walking. Like again, because I've been inside for a while, like my muscles just been kind of atrophying the last couple of weeks because I've just been I've been walking around at work and stuff, but it's been really slow. I've been doing training and um, I've been sitting a lot. So today I walked up a couple hills and uh, it felt really good. It felt good to use my muscles. It felt good to breathe the air. Um, I'm, I'm such a hippie, bro. These are so dramatic. Um, I'm grateful for the way trees subtly move in the wind. And I like it when it, because it, it kind of looks like they're talking to each other. They're like just kind of, not when the wind's blowing aggressively, but just when the wind is just kind of moving in and out of the leaves of the trees. And the trees are just kind of like, almost like they're dancing subtly in the wind. I like that a lot. It's giving uh, Pocahontas. I like, I'm grateful for the uh, for surrendering to the truth and finally letting go of what's not meant for me or what's not mine to keep. More on that later. Um, I'm grateful for empathetic and understanding friends. Literally, I have been so checked out of my friendships recently because I just, I don't have the space to hold, to be honest with you. Like, there's just so much happening. And, but I did reach out to all my besties on Christmas and I was like, yo, listen, I know I owe you a call because it's not just me, right? Like my friends are going through their own life too. Like they've got their own shit going on. And I'm the friend that, like, I'm their friend. Like I, they need to be able to know that they can lean on me. And I just have to accept the fact that like, I just can't be there in every season um, and just cross my fingers that they still love me. <laughs> but I did text all of them. I was just like, Merry Christmas. Like, I love you. Like I've been checked out, but like, I'm going to call soon. I promise. And all of them are like, yo, take your time. You're good. We're good. And I'm like, thank you so much. Like, yeah. So I'm grateful for that because honestly, like I just, bro, I have, I have cultivated the dopest friendships with women, like with the dopest women. And I'm so grateful for that because there was a time in my life where there were a couple, there were a couple people I was just like, eh, you know, but now it's like all my friends, they have their own full lives and they're so empathetic to mine and like their own selves. And there's so much compassion and understanding. They don't take shit personally. And I'm just like, oh, bless. And if they do take things personally, then we talk about it, you know? So grateful for that. And also I'm grateful for living my best life in my bare era. Okay. I'm living my best life in my season of hibernation. Like what I was talking about earlier, I am taking things slow. I am licking my wounds and I'm taking my time to rest. If you want to live in your bare era, join me. I mean, it's honestly annoying that everything is like, you know, insert whatever thing era because of the whole Taylor Swift thing. But whatever, it's fine. It works. And I like it because it's like Carabara era. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's hilarious. I just thought of that just now. Um, but yeah, like I am leaning into this shit, bro. I am in the mountains. I am licking my wounds. I am hibernating. I am fattening up. I'm thinking. I'm contemplating. I am plotting. I'm planning. Um, I am, you know, I even almost got caught in the... I almost got caught in the like, oh, I need to sign up for a gym membership because everything's on discount right now. Or like, I need to buy a new this or kettlebell so I can work out. And then I was like, bitch, <laughs> you have a process. Okay, honor that shit. Your process right now is you're getting your your career and your mental and your sleep and your food in check right now. Part of my process, exercise always comes last, which I know that might sound counterintuitive, but it's my process. Okay. Um, 
And it always starts slow. Before I get back into anything crazy, I always start slow. I start with walking and I start with stretching and I start with yoga. And I have a process. Like this has been a big change in my life. So it's not going to be helpful for me to be like, I'm going to start a program doing online weightlifting with this personal trainer. Like the, the uh, no. <laughs> as much as I would love to say, yes, that's sustainable. It's not. That's not how I operate. So I'm grateful for my bear era, my Carabera era. Feel free to steal bear era if you'd like. Um, but I am leaning into it and I will be ready to fly like an eagle into the sea come spring. So that's my plan. Getting into the topic of the week, um, we will be talking about grief today. Oh, grief, 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 grief. How uncomfy we are with grief. And to start the segment, um, I I wrote something. So I think that, again, I've been talking about how I want to structure the show, but I think I'm finally getting into a flow. So I'm going to start with personal experience and my current thoughts. And this is what I wrote. I can feel my brain expanding. I can feel my awareness and acceptance of nuance increasing by the day with each book I read, words I write, and difficult situations I contemplate. I can feel my grief lingering, though letting go of the hope I had has helped release some stuck emotions I've been bottling up. I've noticed that no one really knows how to handle grief within themselves or amongst those they love. It's this sticky thing that's hard to hold. If I were to try and describe it as if it were an object, I couldn't. It's more like a sludge that slowly slips through your fingers, sticks to your clothes, and leaves you with stains that won't come out. At least that's how it feels. It's like quicksand in that way. The more you fight it, the faster you sink. It's like the only option you have for surviving it is to just sit in it. To let it consume you, and to let it wash over you the way it's meant to. And over time, like anything else, it will transform into something different. Maybe it will shrink in size. Maybe what was once a tar-like sludge solidifies into a glossy, petrified, glass-like rock you put on display in your living room for guests to marvel at in all its beauty. One of my favorite ideals I've come across regarding grief and its explanation is that grief is just love with nowhere to go. I mean, Jesus, could a more concise and heartbreaking definition even exist? Grief is just love with nowhere to go. Or even worse, it's love whose resting place has been taken away by fate or circumstance or even choice. It doesn't matter how or why it has no place to call home. Whatever the reason, it's incredibly painful to deal with. And it's uncomfortable for the people around you to witness it. To witness you with that pain. Maybe it's a lack of experience with that kind of pain. Maybe it's a lack of skill dealing with the pain themselves. Either way, I've learned that grief and dealing with it is an individual journey. And honestly, I'm not mad about it. I mean, what could someone say or do that could, would actually offer some kind of relief? I can't think of anything. When your love has nowhere to go, especially if it was created and housed in and for a specific person, there is no recovering that loss once it's happened. There is nothing you can say or do to change that. And as humans, we hate nothing more than to be kept from the avoidance of our pain. We love an unhelpful numbing agent, whether that be alcohol, drugs, or fleeting and meaningless sex, to distract us from our hurt. In our defense, though, if there was a sustainable and healthy way to avoid pain, 
we would have figured it out by now. The only thing we can do is to just sit in it and accept the fact that it's there. To accept the fact that it hurts and that our pain exists. That we're heartbroken. Accept the fact that we are sad and there's nothing that can or should be done to fix it. There is no fixing our grief. Our grief is perfect. It's a signal that we did something right. That we took a chance and lived for the moment and said, fuck it, I'll run the risk. Our sadness and grief is the risk we put on layaway for admission into a life filled with great love that we finally paid the price for. It was promised to us. Yes, it's painful, but wasn't it worth it? I don't know what the point I'm trying to make in writing all of this is. Maybe the dysfunction and pointlessness in my writing directly correlates with the point of everything. Maybe life is just a non-linear journey with no real lesson to learn, just things to experience. Maybe we are just here to relate and to have feelings and to sometimes go at things alone and other things in, in community. Maybe there is no point, but that is the most freeing aspect to lean into. Grief is just a piece of the life puzzle each of us gets handed when we're born. It's not bad or good. Just painful. <laughs> Pain is a part of the balance of life. It's the yang to the yin, the down to the up. It's not good or bad. It just is. This kind of stoic acceptance has seemingly become a baseline thought process for me throughout my journey back to myself and in my healing. It has a baked-in kind of gratitude to it. A gratitude that doesn't feel performative. It relieves me from helplessness. It reminds me of life's neutrality. Of its perfect balance. It's the annoying reminder that everything leads me back to the concept of my perfect life unfolding in front of me. That everything is happening exactly as it is, in perfect harmony, in perfect timing, culminating into a perfect experience, just because. There is no everything happens for a reason logic that I subscribe to anymore. I think everything just happens. And we're allowed to let that mean whatever we want. I no longer need or expect for others to console me in my grief because honestly, me and my sadness are kind of homies. <laughs> at this point, I look at my grief and feel relief. It's a reminder that I did something quote unquote right. That all this work and all these feelings haven't been for nothing. One of my goals for 2023 was to connect deeper and deeper with my love, the capacity to give it, receive it, and cultivate it. My grief tells me that I did just that and then some. If for every feeling there exists, it's equal and opposite. My grief tells me that I was a that girl when it comes to loving, cherishing, and deepening connection with the people I've chosen. It tells me I did not hold back. In fact, not only did I not hold back, I dove in face motherfucking first without even a whisper of a second guess. With those calculations, I blew my goal out of the water. Another one of my goals was to lean into the humor of it all. And I think in writing these possibly nonsensical paragraphs of words, I've accomplished just that. Also, I've come to observe that having and experiencing the full range of human emotion is hilarious and embarrassing. Like, not only do I have to feel my grief and sadness, but I have to witness myself being emo and dramatic too. Ew. But also, oh, you know? I embrace the cringe and secretly love how meta it all feels. The most helpful tool I've learned to practice when dealing with my grief, which happened to be the last goal I had on my list for 2023, is to enjoy the process. 
Enjoy the process of my learning. Enjoy the process of my loving. Enjoy the process of my confusion and my choosing and my grief. And most recently, enjoying the process of letting go and starting anew. Even if I have no idea what that looks like or who that's with. I think I'm writing all of this because I don't have any one lesson I've learned throughout the last year or any definitive goal to accomplish for the next 365 days. All I know is what is unfolding in front of me right now, moment to moment. A lot of my most recent moments have been spent coming to terms with the fact that a massive chunk of love I had to give no longer has a place to go home to. And even though I spend most of my days laughing and living and working and playing and cultivating a life worth living, the pain of, the tr of that truth is still there. It's achy and stale and juicy and far away and close all at the same time. And it will be for a while. And that's okay. It's a part of the process. It's a part of my process of grief. And for the first time in my life, I actually earnestly am not mad about it. I've surrendered to this thing called life and know that no matter how long my grief persists, I'm grateful for the experiences that led to it and for the grief itself, just because I can. So that's what I wrote. That's where I'm at and uh, per my personal journey. Um, yeah, like grief, man. Am I right? <laughs> <laughs> that being said, I wanted to, that was my own personal experience. That's where I'm at in my life. Like grief is this like sticky, annoying thing that I wish I could get rid of, but like I can't. And so I just, I've just accepted it. I just, it just is happening and it's happening off and on and it's happening inconsistently and non-linearly and that's okay. And it's a part of my experience. It, like I said before, it's, it's a reminder that I'm doing something quote unquote right, that I'm doing something I'm doing exactly what I set out to do, right? To like feel my feelings and to love hard and to hurt hard and to, you know, just we, we, you can't have one without the other. And I fully accept, fully accept the consequences of that. And that's just, I'm just dealing with the consequences of that, honestly. And again, I'm not mad. But all that being said, I wanted to, and I know this is like kind of a long episode, but there were just a lot of things in my mind. And honestly, like, why not have a long episode for the first the first episode of the year. Okay. Um, also, I think, yeah, this year is an eight year anyway. So episode eight, it's an eight year when you add up 2024. Um, so turn up. So all that being said, I wanted to dive deep into kind of like, so yes, this is how I'm processing my grief, but like how have other people processed their grief in, 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 from a philosophical standpoint? So I kind of want to get into the philosophy of grief and what some of the what some of our philosophers over time have said about it and how they've they've dealt with it and how they've come to terms with it to describe it and what it means and how it feels. And um, so I did just that. I did a little bit of research. And also in my research, I keep finding, it's just all men, bro. How come only men are philosophers? It's just really starting to bug me. Maybe I'm not looking hard enough, which could very well be true. But I'm just like, Come on, bro. Like, where are all my ladies at? I know you guys are thinking. I know you're always thinking, thinking and stinking. Um, but with that being said, I, as I was going through and doing research, kind of before I got to that part, before I even knew I was going to write this, what I've been doing recently to 
kind of, I mean, obviously I'm writing in my journal every day, but what I've been doing to figure out the theme for the show each week uh, is I just, anytime I catch a video that resonates with me, I'll send it to myself. Like I'll send it from my personal Instagram to the perfection unfolding Instagram. And then at the end of the week, what I did this past week is I looked through everything I sent myself and I just, I realized, oh shit, these are all about grief. That's hilarious. And so I've kind of just intuitively been talking to myself through Instagram reels and through just silly things like that to figure out where my mind is. And this week it landed on grief. So with that being said, I want to read to you a couple of quotes from, excuse me, from videos that I came across that resonated with me. Um, some of them were videos of people that I knew, you know, as like celebrities that I knew. Some of them were um, just quotes that I found. Um, so I'm going to go through them real quick. And mind you, like I got all of these from Instagram. Okay. So I did not go through and vet all these people who made these quotes, but I do think it's important to note that again, I don't know who all these people are. Like I have a quote here from a rabbi, all the things that are happening in the world right now, no matter what, what you're, what side you're on or whatever, like I think no matter what, if somebody says something that like makes sense and it resonates with you, you're allowed to cherry pick that one thing. That doesn't mean you fully support them and all the other things that they believe, right? So I just want to make that dis- that disclosure and that caveat in case anybody's like, you're the- you support this or you support that. No, I don't. I just saw something on the internet that resonated. I was like, that sounds pretty good. That goes with what I'm trying to get across and keep it moving. So with that caveat, one of the first quotes I came across was um, a quote by Ram Das, aka Richard Alpert. Um, he's actually one of the Harvard psychologists who experimented with psychedelic drugs and kind of from that became one of America's most prominent and respected spiritual leaders in the process. Um, I didn't know that till actually I watched that um, Netflix TV show. What was it called? Um, How to Change Your Mind. They talked about him, I think, on the one of the psychedelic, uh, the mushroom episode and how he was kind of like the godfather of the movement in the 60s uh, with science, with uh, experiments on how psychedelics help people and their mental and stuff like that. I don't know that many details again. Okay. But anyway, cool guy. Very, very popular spiritual leader, guru, whatever you want to, whatever you want to call him. And this, I came across this quote that he said in a video and it said, the paradox is that suffering is part of the plan of it all and suffering stinks. And as a human being, you do what you can to end suffering because of the compassionate nature of your heart at the same moment but at the same moment, you know that it's perfect, including your wanting to get rid of it. When I saw this video, uh, let me just read that again. The paradox is that suffering is part of the plan of it all, and suffering stinks. And as a human being, you do what you can to end suffering because of the compassionate nature of your heart. But at the same moment, you know that it's perfect, including your wanting to get rid of it. I think he was speaking about like human suffering on a grand scale when he made this quote. But again, I just saw a clip of it on Instagram. So it was a bit out of context. But when I'm reading this, again, I still have that dopamine nation book in my brain too, which is all about, um, you know, suffering. And then you pursue dopamine to like help get rid of your suffering, to numb you out, whatever. He's saying the suffering is the part of the plan 
it's just like it, basically what he's saying is that it's going to happen right you're going to be in pain you're going to have grief you're going to suffer it's just baked into being human it's baked into the full spectrum of human emotion um and that sucks and it's allowed to suck right like i feel like when people say everything happens for a reason it's like no i don't think there was a reason that somebody got in a drunk driving accident and died on impact like there's no reason for that it just happens because being in the world is a risk right you're always risking things all the time like there's a risk that something bad could always happen because there's a risk something good could happen too right it's that equal opposite suffering is a part of the full spectrum of human emotion and i think in, in this in this context he was talking about how you know how do we justify all the people in the world who suffer immensely like in the wars and in poverty and um he's like it's just it's just a part of existing right not in those ways it's not they didn't they don't deserve that right that's not it's not deserved it just is a part of the equation right like if there can be the best situation for being on earth there's also going to be the worst situation because again homeostasis balance it's not there's not has nothing to do with fairness right and he even says like um we have this compassionate nature right we have this these hearts that want to help them but we also know that everything is perfect the way that it is it's this it's this dichotomy it's this contrast that we have a hard time struggling with um and even our desire to want to rid ourselves or others of suffering is also perfect like everything is exactly the way it is so i thought that was an interesting uh take and i kind of see how there's certain parts of like what what i wrote that kind of align with that like maybe it just is right it just is a part of the experience um so that resonated with me and then there was this um a lot of these quotes that i came across have to do with grief from somebody dying right um i actually i don't have a whole lot of experience with grief in that exact um i haven't experienced death on a personal level with anybody who's really close to me but i've experienced loss but a lot of these quotes they resonated and they can be applied to loss of relationship even if it's just a breakup um this was a conversation that uh an interview that anderson cooper a broadcast journalist um had with stephen colbert about grief and for context anderson cooper he actually has lost his father and his brother to suicide and steve colbert uh the host of the late show he's he lost his father and two brothers in a plane crash so they both experienced immense grief surrounding the death of their family members again a much probably stronger grief than i would say if everything's a spectrum then that's like top of the spectrum losing people that close to you to death um Whereas like, you know, losing a relationship, still lots of grief. It's not invalidated, but it's just a different, a different level of it. Right. Um, and in this interview, uh, Colbert says about loss, I've learned to love the thing that I most wish had not happened. And then he goes on to say, what punishments of God are not gifts. It's a gift to exist. And with existence comes suffering. There's no escaping that. If you are grateful for your life, then you have to be grateful for all of it. You can't pick and choose what you're grateful for and then what you're grateful for, period. And then he says, what do you get from loss? 
you get awareness from other, of you get awareness from other people's loss, which allows you to then connect with that other person, which then allows you to love more deeply and understand what it's like to be a human being. And I thought that was like, ah, uh, I mean, that's such a beautiful awareness to come to if you can. Right. Like I agree with all of this. Like, I think like nothing is for nothing, right? Like with deep grief and deep sadness becomes deep understanding and deep compassion, right? Like you don't know what you don't know till you know it. And I don't wish grief on anybody, but if it's going to happen to you, like then you, un- then you get it. Right. And so if you come across somebody else who's gone through the same thing, it's like, now you both have this understanding and you're not alone in the world. And an ultimate goal for me is to become the best person I can, like the most compassionate and empathetic person. And I'm never going to wish grief on myself, but when I feel it, that's not something anybody can take away from me. Like that memory of that feeling, no one could take it away from me, even if they wanted to, but I can take that with me and choose to view it as this, this, uh, tool in my tool belt. So when I come across it and I see that in someone else, I can be like, I see you. I hear you. I don't judge you. I don't take your grief personally. Like I can hold space for you. Right. And not in a performative, unauthentic way either. Right. I just thought that was so beautiful. And like in the interview, you know, uh, Anderson Cooper kind of gets choked up and it's this really sweet moment, especially between, you know, two men. Right. Just being vulnerable. It's like, damn, like, I can't imagine like my whole family basically dying in a plane crash or my two closest family members committing suicide. Like I just can't. And to come out with that kind of like abundance mindset, like, and it didn't just come out of nowhere, right? Like he didn't just, it it doesn't just happen. You have to choose that. You have to choose to think that way every day. You have to choose to like honor the awareness that you get and to have gratitude for it. Like, because you know, it's going to lead to deeper, more meaningful connections, right? It's like, if it already happened, you might as well think of it and choose, like, of course, you know, grieve, grieve it. I'm not trying to negate or invalidate or to, um, bypass the grief itself. But if at a certain point, if you can transmute it into this beautiful awareness that you take with you and you share, um, with those around you, I think that's like, that's like best case scenario, right? Um, I came across another quote. Uh, this is by Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Um, again, he he might have some some views on his Instagram that that uh, I don't I don't necessarily agree with. Um, but he, I did come across this quote that popped up on my reels, and um, he says this. Uh, he says, "I don't think anybody who suffered anyone who suffered a tragedy." So let me start again. I don't think anyone who suffered a tragedy. Uh, that has gotten through it in some way will tell you I needed to find deeper meaning in my life. Once something has happened that is tragic, that is a tragic event, i.e. a loss, a death, or anything that is a setback, some people numb themselves. Tragedy is just too strong, too powerful for the mind to fathom. So you have to go deeper than the mind. And the place that's deeper than the mind is love, faith, hope, meaning, and purpose. And that's what you hold on to for your dear life. And you just forge ahead. And I think that speaks to exactly what Stephen Colbert did. Like, tragedy is, like, too 
it's too tragic for our minds to comprehend. And I'll get into an article where um, a philosopher kind of goes into that. We're like, we can't even fathom it, but it's, but it's happening. And we understand that it happened, but like, we can't believe it, you know, at the same time, I think Stephen Colbert is an incredible example of like going deeper than the mind. Like he's leaning into love and faith. It's faith that it meet that it, that it, it takes him deeper in relationships, hope that it will gives it him a meaning and purpose. And, um, like all of these quotes are kind of just leaning into the fact that like, it just is, and it just sucks. And all you can do is do your best with, with it. Right. And, and move forward with greater awareness and, and, um, and a knowing that like, damn, you know, validate your, validate your grief. Like this shit does suck. Don't negate it. Don't bypass it. Don't numb it, but go through it. Kind of like what I spoke to in my, in my article, like you have to go through it. Like, so the last one was one that I kind of quoted in, in my, in my entry, in my paragraphs. Um, it's a quote by Jamie Anderson, which I think they're an author. I tried to look them up. Um, the quote popped up everywhere, but nothing about the author, but maybe there's just a lot of Jamie Anderson's. I don't know, but it says grief is really just love. It's all the love you want to give, but cannot. Grief is just love with no place to go. And that hits the nail right on the head. Um, grief is just love, but it's love out of action. It's like love with nowhere to go. It's love that's just sitting there. You're like holding it in your hand and it just gets heavier and heavier. Um, and and harder to hold the longer it has no place to go. And um, But maybe it doesn't get heavier. Maybe it gets lighter. I don't know. But Or maybe you can transmute it into something else. It's hard to say. I think everyone's different in that way. But I think that that's like a beautiful, concise way to say like love is, I mean, grief is love with no place to go. And, um, and we'll get into some, we'll get into some, some, uh, philosophical backing of, of that in a, in a little bit, but so those are the quotes that resonated with me that I sent to myself via Instagram that I was just like, damn, like, am I really out here in my feelings like this? And the answer to that is yes. Yes, I am. So all that to say, I wanted to get a, philo- a philosophical take on grief and Again, I'm not doing full dissertations on this stuff, okay? I am doing quick Googles to see what I can find and finding articles that I think are dope. So um, as someone who is always trying to distill down and ask questions as to why things are the way they are, um, what they mean, and trying to philosophize things for myself, um, I want to dive into what some other philosophers... I want to dive into the takeaways that other philosophers have had throughout history. Um, so I found this article on bigthink.com and it's called Three Responses to Grief in the Philosophy of Kierkegaard, Heidegger, and Camus. It's written by Johnny Thompson, who teaches philosophy at Oxford Universitat. And um, I was going to chop it up into little pieces, but honestly, the whole article is like, it's pretty short. And um, I, I like that, how concise it is um, and how it gets to the point really easily. So I'm just going to read the whole thing. Um, so it says each one of us will experience something in life that transforms who we are. A human life is one of adventure and tempering. A lot of people today tend to use the language of quote unquote formative experiences, but the idea of an awakening or initiation of some kind 
is as as central to the human condition as sleeping or falling in love. Those who study the stories and myths we tell point out that they often share remarkable similarities. For instance, they involve a separation from home, a test of character, and then a return home with new wisdom or strength. Literally, literally me right now. Oh my God. I'm on my own hero's journey. What can I say? One of these transformative trials comes when we lose someone we truly and deeply love. (laughs) Hashtag me too. Those who have known grief understand something more about life. When we suffer the loss of someone we love, we know what it means to be left alone and behind. On an intellectual level, we know that all things must die. Die metaphorically, die literally. We can rationally appreciate the transience of life, the breakdown of biology and entropy in the universe. But to know death, to feel and bear loss, gives someone an understanding that no poem, movie, or book could convey. Many philosophers have explored the idea of grief and death, and for many, it's the most important thing about being alive. Which, the more I like l- learn about this stuff, I'm just like, yeah, actually. Like, every transformative experience I've had has f- bloomed from grief of some sort. Um... This next section is called Memento Mori. For many people, like the young or the lucky, there is no need to face morality. They can walk through their days without a moment's thought for the big questions about eternity. It won't cross their minds to reflect on their own death or of those around them. They likely will never ponder that the people they have in their lives will, someday, be gone forever. They never appreciate that there will come a time when we, when we each will have our last meal, laugh, and breath that there will be one final cuddle with someone you love, and then no more. Sure, they know it in some remote part of their understanding, but they don't, they don't feel it. It's intellectually objective, quote-unquote, but lacks the emotionally subjective. They lack the deepening that happens for those who have held the hand of a dying parent, cried at a brother's funeral, or sat staring at photos of a now-gone friend. For those who don't know grief, it is as if it comes from outside. In reality, the despair of true grief is something that originates from within. It aches and pulses inside your very being. Uh, The source of despair. For such a universal, sensitive, and poignant issue as grief, there is no one philosophical position. For much of history, philosophers were also usually religious, and so the issue was one was one for priest, scripture, or meditation. The priest-Christian scholars of ancient Greece and Rome are perhaps an exception. But even there, philosophers came stewed in a cauldron of religious assumptions, which, fair. It has become fashionable today to read ancient references to the quote-unquote soul, uh, for instance, as being poetic or psychological metaphors. Yet, with the possible exception of the Epicureans, the ancient world had far more religion than our modern secular sensibilities might prefer. For Soren Kierkegaard, that visceral sense of mortality we get after experiencing grief, he labeled despair. And in the long nighttime of despair, um, and in the long nighttime of despair, we can begin the journey to realize our truest selves, which I find this interesting. When we meaningfully encounter firsthand that things in life are not eternal, and nothing is forever, we appreciate how we passionately long for things to be eternal. True. The source of our despair is that we want that forever, quote-unquote, is that 
blah, blah, blah. the source of our despair is that we want that forever. For Kierkegaard, the only way to overcome despair, to relieve this condition, is to surrender. There is an eternal by which to lose ourselves in. There is faith, and grief is the dark marble door to belief. Interesting. There is faith, and grief is the dark marble door to belief. There is an eternal by which to lose ourselves. Okay, so yeah, so he's, okay, gotcha. Religious boy. So there is an eternal by which to lose ourselves in. There is faith, and grief is the dark marble door to believe. Gotcha. I did read this article, I promise. <laughs> um, the philosophy of grief. So Kierkegaard, he's basically like, you know, grief is the thing that's going to get you to your authentic self. Like without it, you probably can't get there because you don't have that awareness of like death and its realness, right? Um, okay, the philosophy of grief. Grief, pardon. After the Enlightenment and the rise of, of a godless philosophy. Uh, thinkers began to see death in a new way, seeing death only as a gateway to religion no longer worked. The ancient Greek Epicureans and a lot of Eastern philosophers, although not necessarily all, believed this powerful sense of grief can be overcome by removing our mistaken longing for immortality. Interesting. Stoics, too, signed up to the idea that we ache precisely because we wrongfully think we wrongly think things are ours for all time. With a mental shift or after great meditation, we can come to accept this for the false hubris it is. Fair. The German uh, phenomenalist, phenomenologist, pardon me, Martin Heidegger, Heidegger argued that the presence of death in our lives gives fresh meaning to our being free to choose. When we appreciate that our decisions are all we have and that our entire life is punctuated by a final coup de grace, it invigorates our action and gives us a quote-unquote daring. As he wrote, being present is grounded in the turning towards of death. Being present is grounded in the turning towards death. It is a theme echoed in the medieval idea of memento mori. That is, keeping death close to make the current moment sweeter. When we lose a loved one, we recognize that we are, indeed, left behind, and so this, in turn, gives new gravity to our choices. This reminds me, like, this philosophy reminds me of um, the videos I was seeing on Instagram of people buying these calendars, like these life calendars. I think it goes up to 80 years, and they can see in one poster every week of like, the rest of their life for, like, the next 80 years or whatever, and they... They, they scratch it off each week and um it's like keeping death on your wall to remind you to take advantage of each day right to live it's it literally goes it is the quote uh live each day like it's your last right it, the closer you keep death in the forefront of your mind like the more likely you are to not take advantage or um uh not to give that's, that's not what i'm trying to say take advantage of take for granted the time you have here right? Because like no day is promised, right? That's kind of this whole philosophy, keep death, um, turn towards death, right? To, to make your life sweeter, to make your actions more, um, more quick and potent and like deliberate. Um, this goes on to say, for Albert Camus, though, things are somewhat more bleak. Even though Camus's work works were a deliberate and strenuous effort to resolve the listless abyss of nihilism, his solution of quote-unquote absurdity is not easy medicine. 
For Camus, grief is a state of being overcome by the pointlessness of it all. Why love if love ends in such pain? Why build great projects when all will be dust? With grief comes an awareness of the bitter finality of everything, and it comes with an angry, screaming frustration, why are we all here at all? Why are we here at all? Camus's suggestion is a kind of uh, macabre rev- revelry, um, gallows's humor, gallows humor perhaps, that says we should enjoy the ride for the meaningless roller coaster it is. We must imagine ourselves happy. Now this is interesting because, so okay, if Kierkegaard's re- if Kierkegaard's thing was like you can live forever because you know religion, um, you can live eternal in heaven or whatever, even though he didn't explicitly say that, and then. Um, Heidegger was like you know his philosophy for grief is like just turns toward it and you'll live a sweeter life Camus's philosophy reminds me of that picture it's like a meme everything is meme culture bro I feel like a silly little goose but it reminds me of that meme what I've spoken about in previous episodes of like you know he's like everything it's like that guy who's like nothing matters and he's looking at the the mountain wall and he's like all sad and it's dark but then the other guy next to him it's it's like he's like nothing matters and he's looking at the sunshine and um he's all happy and excited it's it's but like camus is the guy who's staring at the wall who's like everything's pointless why should i try and then whereas like if you take the same philosophy and you think like everything's pointless like i can do whatever i want like i can do it just because you know, it's it's interesting how just a, a simple shift in perspective with the same philosophy could change the whole meaning. Because um, I think I lean, I'm lean more into like, it's pointless, so let's just do whatever we want, you know, and have a good time. Whereas like, I can see people having the same philosophy with like, it's pointless, like, why should I try? It's just going to cause heartache. And I'm like, who cares? I can deal with heartache. You know, I'm crazy. <laughs> um Uh, The article ends with uh, the three responses to grief. We have here three different responses to grief. We have the religious turn of Kierkegaard, the existential carpe diem of Heidegger, and the laugh until you die of Camus, which I feel like I'm definitely a carpe diem. I'm probably closer to Heidegger than I am to the other two. It's part of me. I mean, even Camus, like, I don't agree with his, the way he was viewing his philosophy, but if I could edit it and change it, then yeah, I'd agree with Camus. Um, it goes on to say, for many, grief involves a separation from life. It can feel like the wintering of the soul. Ha ha ha, hibernation, Caribbean era, where we need to heal and make sense of existence again. It's a kind of chrysalis. In many cases, we return to life with earned wisdom and, a, and can appreciate the everyday world in an entirely transformed way. Very true. For some, this hibernation goes on for a very long time, and many start to see their cold retreat as all there is. Uh, There are people who will need help. Whether we agree with Kierkegaard, Heidegger, or Camus, one thing is true for all and everyone. Talking helps. Voicing our thoughts, sharing our despair, and turning to someone else is the gentle, warm breeze that starts the the thaw. I think this last paragraph is kind of lazy, but... um, I mean, he's not wrong. He's not wrong. It is a wintering of the soul. I mean, literally... I would say that like winter is grief, is the grief expression of nature, bro. They're like, I need to heal. Like I just, I'm burnt out literally from summer. Um, Key takeaways that are at the top of this article says, the deep and visceral despair that comes from grief can be a transformative moment in our lives. While we all know intellectually that things die, those who have experienced grief firsthand experience the world in a different way. 
Philosophers have responded to the idea of death in different ways. Kierkegaard saw it as a door to faith, Heidegger as a way to give meaning to life, and Camus uh, the absurdity of it all. So I really like that article. It was like very to the point. It was very concise. Um, and um, again, I wish there were some women in here. Maybe these are women who pretend to be men. I don't know. <laughs> That's just my wishful thinking. But yeah, I'm I'm definitely a Heidegger a Heidegger uh, philosopher. I'm like a Carpe Diem. Like, fuck it. What do we have to lose? You know what I mean? Um, but I wasn't always like that. I think I like in my depressive state. Like very easy to fall into a Camus mindset of like, what's the point? Like I don't like everything I do fails. Like everything I touch that like dies metaphorically. Um, I mean, hell, I used to have plants, but they did literally die, and that was unfortunate. But it's like very easy to fall into that Camus mindset of grief of like everything I do leads to pain. Everything I do leads to failure. Everything I touch, like it doesn't, it, it doesn't thrive. Right. But I think it's like, it's inevitable. Like things are inevitable, right? Like you're going to mess things up. You're going to fail. Like you're going to suck at stuff. You're, you are, but it'd be silly of you to say that everything does that without also honoring the, the opposite of that. Like everything thrives. Everything is successful. Like in some form or fashion, at least for a little while, you know, what goes up must, what goes down must go up right? So, you know, you can't just, you can't just choose one side without like, like in the, in the other quotes, without picking the equal up, without choosing to see the whole thing. You don't get to just be grateful for one piece. You get, if you're grateful for your life, you're grateful for the whole thing, right? And um, so, yeah, I think if you're, if you're depressed, it's very easy to fall into that mindset of like, woe is me kind of thing. Like, what's the point? Like, there's no fucking point to any of this. But we make up our own points, bro. Like we do what what resonates and we we put meaning to whatever we want in whatever way we want. Because guess what? Because we can. There's no rules here, bro. So yeah, let's carpe motherfucking deem like Heidegger and be like, and and also have the courage to face death, right? To face our fear of it, to face our fear of failure, to face our fear of heartache, to face our fear of grief. You people, some people will literally be grieving, but like be so dissociated from it. That they don't even know that's what they're going through. They'd rather just get high or, or or drink or, you know, keep their mind busy with social media. Like back to that dopamine nation book. They're just like num 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 num. Whereas a little bit of pain, a little bit of grief, facing it, the only choice you have is to experience, like pleasure and growth and and awareness and abundance on the other side. How long that takes is, who knows? Like that's that's where the variables come into play. Everything's a spectrum, right? Um, but yeah, I liked this article. I liked, I liked reading the different philosophies. Um, and I'm learning right alongside you, which is, I think is kind of cool. Um, another article I came across is, can you tell that I'm pumped? Um, so those are like older, uh, philosophers, right? Obviously like Epicurean era and, um, long time ago. So I wanted to find more articles of philosophers, um, present day uh, philosophers, again, only found men. And I was led to a lot of books about grief that people have written, but obviously like, uh, I didn't look that far ahead to like buy it and read it. And uh. So I did find an article. Um, I found an article called Grief Worlds, uh, uh, colon, in conversation with philosopher Matthew Ratcliffe. 
um, on the MIT Reader Press website. Um, Matt, Matthew Radcliffe, he's a professor of philosophy at the University of York in the UK. Um, and he's the author of several books, most recently, uh, Grief Worlds, A Study of Emotional Experience. And so I found this article where he's being interviewed um, talking about his book. And it's kind of a long article, but I just I just uh, clipped out the, the part that was most relevant. And this is what he had to say about uh, grief. He said, I maintain that the object of grief, what it is about or directed at, is a loss of possibilities. This applies to bereavement and also to emotional experiences of quote-unquote grief or quote-unquote loss in a range of other circumstances. Bereavement, I think, is literally when, when um, somebody in your life uh, passes away. Um, but he's saying that this applies to grief in any capacity, grief and loss in any capacity of, like I said, a lost relationship, you know, a, a, a friendship breakup, a death, um, etc. So his main point so far is that grief is is the loss of it's like directed at the loss of possibilities. Um, whereas the other philosophies are kind of just spoke to how you deal with grief and how you should look at it. This is speaking to like what grief actually is, like how you like it's like what you're responding to and where it comes from, which I think is awesome. Um, it goes on to say, it is it is commonplace in philosophical discussions of emotion to distinguish between the concrete and formal objects of an emotion. For instance, while the concrete object of fear might be a fast approaching and hungry tiger, the formal object is threat. However, where grief is concerned, I suggest instead that the object or objects of grief are experienced with varying degrees of concreteness and also that the emphasis varies at different points during the grief project. Um, at a particular time, one's grief might be preoccupied primarily with the way in which a person died, the fact that they are dead, the loss of a relationship, what the future now holds, or various other considerations. Uh, what makes something an object of grief is its being integral to a wider ranging loss of possibilities. Furthermore, it is experienced as such Hence, I would not deny that grief is about a death or someone's being dead, but I would add what we grieve over is the death as a loss of possibilities. So he's saying, like, if you take the concept of, um, of, uh, what did he, he gave the, the example of the tiger. <clears throat> so the concrete object of fear, uh, it might be like the example of a tiger coming at you, but the formal object of fear is threat. Um, and then he's saying, so like, that's like a very, like a one-on-one ratio where he's saying with grief, it's not like, excuse me, oopsie, I have the burpees. He's saying with grief, um, they're experienced of varying degrees of concreteness. So it's like, it's not just the fear of the tiger, right? It's, or in grief, it's, it's not just the loss of the, the literal physical person. It's the loss of the person, the loss of like the future you have with that person, the loss of the pot. It's like, all of them leading to like the loss of the possibilities of what could have happened if that person was still alive. So it's it's different things. It's not just this and that. It's like this or that or that or that or that where these are all instances where you can experience grief and where it can originate from. Again, death as a loss of possibilities. <clears throat> it goes on to say, of course, we lose possibilities all the time. Furthermore, even losing possibilities in which we were heavily invested need not add up to grief. 
However, drawing on a number of different sources, I argue that what makes a loss of possibilities an object of grief, rather than just, say, disappointment or regret, is that those possibilities were integral to one's life structure, practical identity, or experiential world. This is pretty self-explanatory, but yeah, like, we lose things all the time. Like, we lose jobs, and we lose, you know, clothes, and we lose opportunities for things that we wanted to do, but they kind of fell through the cracks, and it's like, okay, you know, whatever. That's a loss. I'll try again. And those can hurt our feelings, but he's saying that the loss of possibilities um, as an object of grief, it's it's because it was the thing that we lost was a part of our identity. It was a part of our our experiential world. It was like integral to our life and its structure. Um, and by removing it, it like totally alters our life as we know it, right? Not everything has the capability of doing that. And he's saying, you know, that's kind of what makes grief special in this way. It says, this is not to insist that grief is future-oriented as opposed to being past-oriented. To, th- to lose... Um, excuse me. To lose important future possibilities is equally to change how we relate to our past. The significance of past events and the relations between them deemed uh, on what they lead to and, with this, how they relate to the ongoing course of one's life. Thus, memories of a wonderful day with one's partner can be transformed by their death. Those events no longer have the significance they once had or occupy the same place in one's mind, in one's life. So this is saying that, like, not only does grief fuck with your present and your future, like the loss of possibilities from, let's say, somebody passing away or you end a relationship, but it also fucks up your your memories, like the past. Like, that's why I think some people, when they deal with grief, like, like, if this person was an integral part of your life and, like, you've done all these things together, like, going, like, with this in mind, like, going to those same places could taint those those old memories right and like then you don't want to go to those places that you used to go with that person or you don't want to do the things that you used to do with that person anymore because it in by doing so it like ruins the memory it like makes it bitter in your your past which is fascinating because i feel like that yeah like that's very true i mean depending on your outlook depend, again spectrum of human emotion right some grief is heavier and deeper and darker than others right if you can have an attitude of gratitude about about your grief and about what happened, then I think, you know, you might still be able to hold on to those sweet memories. But again, he's just speaking to the ability that, that grief is capable of, the things that grief is capable of. Um, nom, 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 nom. what I just read? Okay. One of the things that led me to emphasize the loss of possibilities rather than a more specific concrete object of grief was the example of grief over childlessness where grief is directed at childlessness per se rather than its more specific circumstances there is no historical concrete object to be identified there is only the loss of possibilities around which one's life was once structured this is fascinating so he's talking about people who never had kids in the first place but like the opportunity to have kids is taken away from them and they still have this grief of loss of the possibility of like raising that child and seeing them go to prom and like having this family that they dreamed of. They have grief about this thing that never existed. 
That's fascinating. Uh, it is tempting to uh, it is tempting to object that bereavement grief is altogether different in this regard, uh, i.e., the death of a someone you love. However, I reject that view. Consider the example of loving a child who uh, who was once a baby and now is a young adult. The adult whom whom one loves has few, if any, significant properties in common with the baby, and the relationship has also changed radically. Yet we do not tend to grieve over all that is co-signed uh, to the past, at least where the journey to adulthood is largely one of positive development, of actualizing possibilities rather than having them negated. Where so much has already receded in the past, the, the person's death does not make it any more past, any more lost. Okay, so he's comparing like when you're as your child gets older, like you don't um I have to read that one again. So mm. object that bereavement and grief altogether different. So he's 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 um stating that he doesn't find like the growth of your child from baby to adult. Um shit, I gotta read this again. It is tempting to object that bereavement and grief is altogether different in this regard. However, I reject that view. Consider the example of loving a child who was once a baby and is now a young adult. The adult whom one loves has few, if any, significant properties in common with the baby, and the relationship has also changed radically. So he's saying, like, from the baby to adult, like, that's two different people, like, two totally different people, but, like, the baby's not there anymore, right? Um, yet we do not tend to grieve over all that is uh, consigned to the past. At least where the journey to adulthood is largely one of positive development, of actualizing possibilities rather than having them negated. Where so much has already receded in the past, the person's death does not make it any more past, any more lost. So he's saying like the death of your your baby, because now that they're an adult, like, still counts. I think I messed up, like, the whatever. Hopefully you got it. I think I understand, but I'm having a hard time, like, verbalizing. Um... The last two paragraphs. When we pursue this kind of thinking to its conclusion, we come to see that it makes little sense to regard losses as primarily historical. Rather, um, like grieving what was, right? Rather, what is lost is a, is a certain, distinctive configuration of possibilities or potentialities, something that the changing significance of past events equally depends on. Not all bereavements are alike, and the emphasis can vary. Sometimes what is most salient is the my loss of possibilities, sometimes yours, and sometimes ours. Sometimes, okay, he, he ends, sometimes what is most salient is my loss of possibilities, sometimes yours, and sometimes ours. Got it. The emphasis on lost possibilities can accommodate a great deal of variety. It also enables us to understand how one's world as a whole is transformed during grief and how it changes over time. Grief, I suggested, is a temporary, a temporarily, a temporally extended process that involves recognizing, comprehending, practically engaging with, and to varying degrees, adapting to losses of possibilities that are integral to who we are and how we find ourselves in the world. Boom! Fire power. Wild. I. I. I agree with this. I, I agree with this. I'm just like, yes, this makes sense. Like, you're grieving what you had. You're grieving what you thought you were going to have. 
and who you and what you what you could be like what could happen so you are grieving you are grieving you know things that concretely you've lost like the person's presence the person's mind words relationship but you're also grieving like what could have been with that person the possibilities of what could have been and i think i can speak directly to that like when i was healing my father wound and by healing i mean cutting off communication from him for a year i had to grieve the father i never had and the father i always wanted i had to like let those die i they had to die i was grieving the loss the lost possibilities and i had to let go that those possibilities were never going to be there but like but i i thought they were there once so by losing those possibilities like that gave, sent me into this big deep depressive grief of like damn but on the other side of that was me accepting my father for who he was and being able to relate with him on that level so that's very true for me in terms of that um and same thing with my with this past relationship is like i'm grieving the life i thought i would have i'm grieving the loss of possibility so true damn he nailed this shit even though I kind of fudged up one of those paragraphs, I think I understood. <laughs> um, so yeah, those were like the the perspectives that I found on the internet that I was like, interesting. Um, and it just kind of makes you think like, we all go through this shit. Like, I, it's so fascinating to me that like, we don't, we have so much shame around grief, right? We have so much like shame and we keep it to ourselves. And And I get it. Like, trust me, like, I even wrote in my piece, I was just like, people don't know how to hold grief. People don't know how to, how to console you in grief. And, and me personally, how I deal with it is like, I deal with it on my own. Like there is nothing anybody can say that will help, to be honest. Like, even if you've been through it yourself, like there's nothing you could say or really do that would help unless I came to you and was like, can you just sit with me? You know, that that's personally how I would deal with that. But everybody has different needs and everybody has different um, ways of dealing with things. and. Um, but just know, like this is a this is a human experience that we are all that's happening to all of us all the time in varying degrees, right? It's a spectrum. Um, I am lucky that the grief that I feel is the grief that I feel, and death is promised to all of us and all of our family members. So I will deal with that when it comes. But in the meantime, you know, I'm gonna live my life. Like I'm not afraid of death, and and honestly, like. I know I've never experienced the death of a, of a family member, like, i.e. My, my mom or my dad or my siblings. Um, knock on wood. Hee <laughs> hee, little stitches. And it's going to be so, like, I can't, unfathomably painful to move through that if and when it comes. <laughs> um, my whole family, they're going to live forever. But I'm just glad that I'm prepping and priming myself now Again, don't know how I'm going to deal with it. You can say something and you can prepare for something your whole life and it, it comes and everything goes out the window. But I I like to think about this stuff and I, I like to feel my feelings and I think that's the skill that I'm, I'm, I'm strengthening right now. I'm strengthening my ability to handle more pain and handle more grief and to like sit with it and sift through it and turn towards it instead of away from it like a big part of my sobriety is like i don't want to numb myself to being alive 
right? Like, I want all the best things life has to fucking offer. Like, I want to feel the highest highs. I want to, I want to love hard. And I want to, I just, I want it all. And with that, I accept the risk of pain. Like, I expect it, right? Almost. And, um, because to be honest, like, life is inherently traumatic. I think I've said that before. But my goal is to, you know, just let the traumatic things be traumatic and then enjoy the rest of my life. Like, I don't want to create any problems, right? I'll just let the problems that arise, arise organically and deal with them accordingly. But hopefully that gives you like a better, a better understanding or at least outlook about grief. And I think just having conversations about it casually is super important. I mean, I know like last week, I mean, you audibly heard me deal with dealing with my grief, which (laughs) hashtag vulnerability. Um, This week I'm talking about it in a more matter of fact way, but I think just being able to have the conversation and not being afraid of it, bro, like it is so unhelpful to be afraid of yourself and the way that you feel like I know it's uncomfy. I know it's uncomfy, but like, I dare you, I dare you to feel a feeling this year. (laughs) If you're a person who has a hard time hearing yourself and sitting with yourself, sitting silently even. Like, I dare you to add that to your 2024 bingo card. Like, I was thinking about that today. Like, instead of resolutions, just like dare yourself to do stuff. Like right now, like I, not right now, but this week or sometime this year, whatever, I dare you to sit with yourself silently outside in nature. Do it once, do it once a week. I just, I just dare you to sit distraction free by yourself somewhere in nature for at least an hour, 10 minutes if you need to start somewhere small. And then if that's, if you enjoyed that, then like do it again the next week and then the next week and the next week. And just, just sit with yourself. Like I dare you to let your mind wander, to just sit and let your mind wander in nature, looking at the trees, looking at the rocks, stopping to smell the roses. I dare you and just see what happens and report back. I would love that. That'd be that'd be amazing. Tell me what you what you experienced. Tell me what you discovered about yourself. You know, like I bet you you'll all these things will start coming to your brain. Like, and even if they're uncomfortable thoughts, just like let them be what they are, right? You're always going to be going through what you're going through, right? And that stuff doesn't go away until you address it. Period. That's just how it works. But do it with no judgment, right? Or at least try to. That's helped me a lot. I'm speaking from experience. I don't just say things to you guys for all willy-nilly. Like most of the things that I'm saying to you, like I've experienced, I've dealt with, I'm currently dealing with. Um, I'm just sharing in hopes that like you don't feel so alone. And maybe there's something that I say that helps you along the way. Though that being said, that was our main topic of the day. And now we're gonna get into some affirmations. I don't think I was gonna leave you without them, girl. Um <clears throat> so. Again, this chapter from The Artist's Way ends with affirmations. <laughs> it's a great book, you guys. Highly recommend. Like, order it for yourself on Amazon if you're trying to be more creative in the new year. Um, so, also from chapter eight of, um, of The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, um, the following affirmations affirm your right to the practice of your creativity. Uh, take five affirmations and work with them this week if you like. Or you could just let me read them to you and take them in as I'm saying them to you. Or, you know, I'm going to be using I, but 
know that just like pretend like you're saying them to yourself. Um, a goal for me is that I, again, creativity must persist. I think creativity is it's like integral to like dealing with your emotions and being more compassionate. Um, it, everything's interconnected, right? Creativity help me helps me deal with my grief better, right? Because every time I write, I'm like expelling something from inside of me and it makes me feel better. So these are the affirmations that were in the book and they resonated deeply. And so I'm going to share them with you. So if you have a, if you, if you were able find a comfy seat, if you want to close your eyes and take a nice deep breath and let these affirmations wash over you and take them with you into this, this new week, this first week of 2024. I am a talented person. I have a right to be an artist. I am a good person and a good artist. Creativity is a blessing I accept. My creativity blesses others. My creativity is appreciated. I now treat myself and my creativity more gently. I now treat myself and my creativity more generously. I now share my creativity more openly. I now accept hope. I now act affirmatively. I now accept creative recovery. I now allow myself to heal. I now accept God, source, universe, spirit's help unfolding my life. I now believe God, source, universe, spirit loves artists. Take a deep breath. And you can open your eyes. That is today's show. Thank you so much for listening. I know this is a, a deep, long episode, but every once in a while, these are going to come up. These are going to happen because there's just so much to share and so much to talk about. And um, and there's this final quote that I came across um, before we end the show uh, and close it out. It's by F. Scott Fitzgerald. I also came across this on Instagram. So you just love the internet. And I think it's perfect for the energy of a new year and what it can bring, uh, possibilities and and choice and all this stuff. And uh, he says, for what it's worth, it's never too late, or in my case, too early, to be whoever you want to be. There's no limit. There's no time limit. Start whenever you want. You can change or stay the same. There are no rules to this thing. We can make the best. Oh, I'm fucking up this whole quote. <laughs> Let me start again. Okay. For what it's worth, I'm trying to read it all like fancifully and it's cringy. So I'm just going to read it normal. Okay. For what it's worth, it's never too late or in my case, too early to be whoever you want to be. There's no time limit. Start whenever you want. You can change or stay the same. There are no rules to this thing. We can make the best of or the worst of it. I hope you make the best of it. I hope you see things that startle you. I hope you feel things you never felt before. I hope you meet people who have a different point of view. I hope you live a life you're proud of. And if you're not, I hope you have the courage to start all over again. 
And I concur. I hope you have the courage to start all over again. I somehow mustered it up and I will continue mustering it up every day in spite of my grief. Um, And I hope that you do too. Um, I personally, I don't know what the future holds, but what I do know is that I trust myself to navigate it with an attitude of possibility, an attitude of gratitude, because, you know, life be life and and, uh, we can do whatever we want with it. And I plan to do just that. And I hope you do too. That has been episode eight of Perfection Unfolding with me, Kara G. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Um, You know the deal. Like, share, rate this five-star review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you're listening to podcasts. Um, Follow us on YouTube. I will eventually be posting videos, clips at least, on YouTube Shorts and on Insta at Perfection Unfolding Pod. You can follow me, your host, uh, at Kara G. Campbell. Um, And also, if you're interested in health coaching or if you're interested in life and relationship coaching, I still have to update my website. Um, You can schedule an appointment with me at caragcoaching.com. Honestly, I do do free consultations and we can talk about if it's even coaching is even a fit for you, if something you're interested in. Um, And we'll go from there. Uh, Yeah. Follow the pod. Thank you guys so much. Happy motherfucking new year. Um, and I hope if you're going through some grief, you have a better understanding. And with that, I'll see you next week. I'll talk to you next week. Okay. Bye.